I am pleased to introduce for this week's first installment of the Border Chronicle audio, Amy Wan, who will share her profound perspective of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands from the point of view of people who were here long before the border existed, the Tona Atum. Amy works for the International Indian Treaty Council and is a longtime cultural activist who grew up in Newfield on the Tana Autumn Nation. The United States imposed that boundary in the mid-19th century with no consultation of the Autumn people. Although the Tana Autumn Nation is located in southern Arizona and the size of the state of Connecticut, Autumn lands reach deep into Mexico. As Amy will say, and she was born in the 1980s, she comes from the last generation to experience freedom of movement before the Border Patrol occupied their land. In the late 1990s, but particularly in the post 9-11 era, the Border Patrol imposed itself with checkpoints on every paved road out of the nation, with forward operating bases with armed agents, and with surveillance systems. And aside, at one point, Amy discusses her trip to Israel and Palestine, and she was going to see where towers, integrated fixed towers, uh, were first constructed in Palestine by an Israeli company before being constructed on autumn land. I have known Amy for nearly a decade, first because of her activism fighting this Border Patrol presence, and since then, I have come to know her as an educator and, dare I say, a visionary. Please enjoy. Well, Amy, hmm? Amy Wan, yes. thank you very much for um, being here with me. Hmm. Um, this is, in fact, the first uh, audio interview of the Border Chronicle, so I'm very honored to be in your presence for this. I'm honored to be the first. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, we're, we're talking here from an office in Tucson, Arizona. Um, and uh, I guess I wanted to start out by asking you about um, about the border mm-hmm. and just, just hear about your experience with the border, mm-hmm. where you're from. Mm-hmm. Well, if I can introduce myself first in all of them. Um, um 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 Sylvester Wan and Mary Melissa Miles but Daniel but and Mary Elizabeth Miguel but Miguel but um, <clears throat> my name is Amy Wan, and I come from um, Komobabi community, but also uh, which is uh, Newfield's community on the Donaldson Nation. For the most part, I spent a lot of time in my childhood growing up um, there in Newfield's with my dad's family. Um, <clears throat> my grandpa, my family um, down there, our, our roots come from a community called um, Jodekwahia or Poza Verde, and it's a community on the other side of the, the so-called border now, um, in one of the traditional communities 
um, that we still have. I, I, I like to share that, you know, when growing up down there um, in Newfields, you know, we didn't, we didn't really know what a border was. We didn't know that it existed as it, as a lot of people understand it to be, that it's a line between two countries. Um, when I was growing up, it was just a barbed wire fence. Um, you know, I just have good memories about it, growing up good memories in that area, of, you know, being with my family, uh, my cousins in the back of my grandpa's pickup truck, um, and in that, in the, at the border, at the gate, as a lot of autumn call it, or um, in autumn we would call it Gorekijik, um, it was a meeting place, and um, it was a place for autumn on both sides of the line to um, trade. And so the autumn to the south, they would um, bring vegetables and fruits and coffee and liquor and food, you know, in general. So when I was when I would be with my grandpa, you know, he'd be at the end of the day after doing his ranch work, <clears throat> he would take us there and we would get. Um, you know, just like a little treat. And it was just, um, it was fun. And I never felt um, in danger. I never felt like it was a place that we shouldn't be. It was just the opposite. It was, a, it was home. Um, <clears throat> and so I'm, I'm 35, um, growing up, I think I would say, we started to see changes um, when I was about seven. We were being told to be careful. I remember that uh, that our aunts and our uncles would start to tell us, you know, to stay close. And but we didn't understand why. We didn't really know what the changes were in the beginning. <clears throat> um, but but at that time was when we started to see a lot of people traveling through the nation. Um, migrants, travelers, um, but it wasn't something that I saw, you know, I just, now I understand that that's what was happening at the time. And then later on, um, we started to see, um, drugs and just different things, other things, and it started to become more dangerous. And a little before I was born, um, my, my grandmother, Mary Miles, um, she, her second husband, um, his name was Glenn Miles, and he was one of the first um, autumn U.S. Customs agents, um, one of the first members of the Shadow Wolves, and, you know, Glenn had already been an agent for a while um, when he met my grandma, and they were married for about a year before he was murdered down at the border. Um, so he was patrolling in the area, and he um, got a call and, you know, it's not like it is now. There weren't any border patrol agents out there. Um, there, I think there was only a handful of agents that were patrolling the, the whole border at the time. Um, and they were all autumn. And, um, uh, the, the story that I was told growing up was that, you know, by the time his, his, um, his partners got to him, he was already, um, shot in the like I guess assassination style in the back of the head so my grandma had a lot of like mm, I would say I guess like memorabilia that I like to look through growing up um, because he was considered the first casualty of the border 
and she had a lot of um, pictures and cards from different um, different agencies throughout the country. And so just kind of hearing those stories about what happened to Glenn and and um, it, he, he had passed away actually in February of 1986 and I was born in April of 1986. So I was on the way going ahead to when we started to see um, changes um, what had happened to my other grandpa. You know, he lived by himself, he was a cowboy. And um, um, some smugglers had broken to his house and um, they um, stole his truck. I remember it was around Christmas because, you know, my aunties were telling us like, grandpa's not able to buy you guys gifts this year. Like it, it was, you know, something that happened. And um, my uh, cousin, she ha had a dream that something happened to my grandpa and she wanted my uncles to go check on him. And when they got to his house, he was tied up in his bed and um, he they had also even shot at his head and they missed, but thankfully they didn't check, you know, to see if they missed or not. Um, so that was how they found him. And after that was when, you know, people started to get scared. Um, and the community there, uh, they felt they actually began to patrol um, the area on their own. And I remember um, the men and different families in the community would take turns each night. Was the community right on the border? Yes. Yeah, it's the last community on the border. It's not even a mile away from the border. But I like to think about it because I like to remember that Autumn were able to protect our own communities before Border Patrol um, came in the way that it did. Um, but because there was so much... Um, traffic at the time across back and forth across the border um the dawn of the nation government created the rangers and so it was the rangers and then then after that um seeing more border patrol and i remember i remember that it was a big deal because um, my little brother at the time was just little he was probably about two or three and him beginning to um recognize the border patrol vehicles and call them out like as a kid you know like just recognizing the the green and white and and he used to call it border control you know as a little kid and and um it just felt and even though i was small at the time um i remember feeling um watched i guess you would say that that was the biggest thing was like no having that um, sense of freedom. I would say between the ages of 10 to um, when I was in high school, was just seeing like year after year, more and more Border Patrol, um, um, the checkpoints going up um, when I was, um, when about the time when I graduated high school. And then, um, but also, you know, seeing like what was happening in the community, which was a lot of my um, family and my community basically, you know, get caught up in um, the business of trafficking. And I think that's something that not a lot of people talk about um, because it is, you know, it is a, um, um, it is a, a harsh truth and it is a symptom 
of what was happening at the time, which, <clears throat> you know, now that I'm older and I, I understand um, that in around that time, the early 90s is when NAFTA was enacted. There was a lot of um, different things that were happening in Mexico that, you know, I don't think a lot of people were, um, were aware of and also not realizing that um, the border was being secured from both sides of us in California and Texas and, um, you know, not really understanding what, um, um, you know, Homeland Security or Border Patrol was doing strategically at the time to um, funnel traffic through our area. Um, and, you know, growing up, it wasn't something that was bad. You know, there were, um, I always understood that people who were traveling through our area, um, they, it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad thing. It was actually a resting place. You know, it was a place where people would rest um, with families for a while. They would even work to help build houses or, um, do ranch work or what have you, and then they would move on, you know, and it, it was always, a, um, there was a reciprocity, you know, from, from us, the autumn who knew, you know, that what it was like to travel through the desert. And then the people who are coming through that have respect, like, hey, these, these are, these are um, the Indios, you know, and this is their area. And this is just, you know, it was, there were some partnerships and things going on there. And I think um, in some funny ways, like that partnership, like continued, but it morphed into something else with what was happening um, or what began to happen with a lot of the smuggling and human tra trafficking and things like that. And so I guess I see the, you know, what's happening from a lot of different angles. Um, and I think a lot of people have to understand that, like, it's not, black and white it's 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 we're humans <laughs> humans and you know our history and just the way that we we move to especially to survive you know um I think the border is a hot spot for that um, for a lot of different reasons but when when I was um in high school I started to see that the the way that um Border Patrol, the way that they, how did I say, that the way that they acted um, in the community began to change where it was not um, there to be helpful anymore. It was there to be controlling. And, um, um, and this was the early 1990s. Yeah, era. it was the early 90s. But it, it wasn't like it was a happy thing, like, oh, yeah, Border Patrol's here. But it was like, okay, they're here. You know, they're here too to um, help with this, this, these things, excuse me, these things that were happening. But like I said, it, it like, I see that it, you know, they, they turned, they turned against us, they turned against the community where um, the community was, you know, suspect. Um, the communities were the ones being, so, you know, under surveillance and um, being checked. And that was when the checkpoint started to go up. At first, that was actually on the res. It was a little, it was actually in um, Shukla District near um, Crohane community. Um, it's, it's now off the nation, but it's at the boundary. Um, so, but before that, it was 
know, it was on the res, and I'm I'm glad they moved it. But that was it was really you know it was actually in the community. Um, but pretty soon we started to see a lot of harassment. The the scariest was when uh, Bennett Patricio um, was run over. He was 18 at the time, um, walking home to his community in Cowlick, um, was hit and run, uh, hit and run over by a border patrol agent um, and died. And his family was harassed a lot by border patrol. Um, and a lot of the community, um, the a lot of the community believes that you know Border Patrol is basically doing something that they shouldn't be doing, and that he saw something, and that's why he was you know killed. Um, and again, like nothing ever came out of it. His you know the the agent who went to trial was set free. It wasn't like he was just hit once and. And and that was it. It was his body was run over um, a couple of times, um, and his his family, his mom, um, did a lot of interviews. You know, saying that you know they would find their their tires slashed, or they would um, just different things that were happening to them to the point where they actually moved off the res into another state for a while um, because there was just a lot of things that were happening to them following um, his death. Um, for, for me, what really got me involved around 2006, um, while I was uh, attending Donald Community College, um, there was an elder from my district, from San Pedro community, which is the last community before you hit the Eastern boundary to Tucson. Um, there's an elder there who went through the checkpoint and she refused to roll her window down the hallway. And they, um, they when they finally got her to roll it down, they um, basically just, you know, pulled her out of her vehicle, cut her out of her seatbelt, um, just man, manhandled her. And um, the local news newspaper um, the runner, they interviewed her about her experience. They took pictures that they didn't publish in the in the um, in the paper, but they they did show to us, you know, and her arms were bruised, you know, this is that elder. And so um, for us young people who had already seen all these things happen that I had shared earlier, I think, you know, for us that was like the last straw, like okay somebody needs to say something um, we need to stand up for ourselves because it's getting too much you know there's there's a lot we started to um, organize ourselves and and you know really ask like what are what are our rights when we're dealing with border patrol because nobody had ever told us or asked um um so you know we just started to ask ourselves and do research and talk to our um, um, attorney general of the nation, talk to people at ACLU here in Tucson and ask, you know, yeah, what are our rights when we're dealing with Border Patrol? Um, started to have presentations um, in the community to share that with people. A lot of people would show up were, were wanting to, most of all, like empower people, you know, when you go through the checkpoint that you can say no. Um, these are the things you can say no to 
but not not even just on the checkpoint, like on the nation with roving patrols. You know, like just because your vehicle is dusty, doesn't mean they have um, probable cause. You know, like we have a lot of dirt roads out there, and just and also defining that for people, what is pro- probable cause, what is reasonable suspicion, all that stuff. I do feel that what we began to do at the time with educating people is really helpful because people um, um, started to assert themselves, especially at the checkpoints. And you could definitely see the change in the attitude of agents too when we would go through the checkpoint um, to where they would treat us like we didn't know shit, you know, to where they, they were careful. They were a little bit more careful and people started to like get, you know, smart and like I guess just not be scared anymore. I like uh, thinking about my uncle. He was telling us about going through the checkpoint, and um, he said, you know, because their their question is, "Are you a U.S. citizen?" And um, and so when he went through, they asked him, you know, "Sir, are you a U.S. citizen?" And he just laughed and he said, "The first ones, you know," and and then you know they got a laugh and they let him go. Or um, others who start to say, you know, if they ask, are you a citizen? And they say, well, I'm awesome. And so they would, you know, let them go. But eventually the agents started to ask, well, you are, are you a U.S. autumn or a Mexican autumn? And, you know, that pissed a lot of people off because we're autumn, you know, on both sides of the line, we're autumn. Um, but then, you know, that, that also started to define who, who was who. Um, and that also, you know, brings to attention that autumn are treated differently if you're autumn in the U.S. or you're autumn in Mexico. And so for autumn in Mexico, basically, when the checkpoints went up, they couldn't leave the reds. Um, they were just, you know, if they went through the checkpoints, they were treated like like illegal. Could you explain, like, is there how many? Is there quite a few people that live on? In Mexico, autumn that live in Mexico, and that there's a, a freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, um, I would say up until the early '90s, we had um, our our traditional crossings were still open. So, the Donatha Nation shares 75 miles of international border with Mexico and the U.S. And we had three main traditional crossings from the west to the east um, that we would cross. You know, we would, families, like I said, were able to cross back and forth by vehicle or on foot or what have you. Um, and the area that I'm more most familiar with is the gate or Gorgijic and San Miguel or what people know as the San Miguel gate. Um, and on the Mexico side of the line, um, we still have nine traditional communities. And so when the line was drawn, you know, it did it did divide the people in half. They're not just the people, but a lot of things. And I think one of the main impacts has been culture, you know, the language, the songs, the ceremonies, the dances, um, what was done in, on the Mexico side of the line stayed, but... It didn't, um, it didn't, uh, it wasn't more known on the U.S. side and vice versa, like as far as ceremonies and things like that, because it, you know, cut, it did affect how people were able to move 
back and forth for those ceremonies and gatherings and things like that. Um, five to eight years ago, those traditional crossings began to be closed. Some by Border Patrol or Department of Homeland Security, there's two to the west that Border Patrol, you know, they're gated and they're closed and they have the keys. Um, but the checkpoint, I mean, excuse me, the um, crossing at San Miguel Gate, um, that was closed by a Mexican ranching family um, to, the, to, the, to the south. And there's a lot of um, land grabs. There's a lot of um, political things that um, are around all of that. All of that because, you know, autumn, historically, we've always occupied those lands, but we also didn't have access to the, the official documents like land deeds and things like that because a lot of indigenous people in Mexico don't really have access or rights to those things like Mexican, Mexican citizens. Um, before that, there was transportation for members in Mexico to come to the U.S. to take care of their business, to get um, water even, um, to get groceries and things like that, or even to go to school for the younger, younger of them. Um, but a lot of that changed when they um, shut down the autumn in Mexico office. And I think the nation probably just felt a lot of pressure from the U.S. government because they were cracking down on border security to not to not do those things anymore. And so it did put a lot of hardship on the people in Mexico um, just for their their survival. Did they stop crossing freely? Um Yes and no. Um, it definitely became more more challenging to do that. So what used to take about 20 minutes to get from Newfields to Jalaguahia through our crossing and through the dirt roads um, now takes two, about two and a half hours to get from Newfields or the nation around through Sassabee and then heading back west to, to those communities. Um, but we still do it. And um, we also still uh, cross for ceremonial purposes. Just even this past year, I've been involved with three runs that we've done um, along the border and back and forth across the border. Um, and that's our way of maintaining our presence because um, you know, that's something that I've heard from elders who aren't here anymore. Um, telling us that, you know, that's our job is to have a presence on both sides of the line, to have a presence going back and forth, because as soon as we stop, they're going to say, oh, no, you don't, you don't have that right because you're not asserting it or because you don't do that anymore. And Did, didn't you say on your, uh, on the last uh, generation to um, see the nation without mm -hmm. such a huge presence of border patrol. Because when you look at it, just from a budgetary standard uh, standpoint, if you look at the nineteen early nineteen nineties, like they they had a one point five billion dollar budget for border and immigration enforcement, mm -hmm. and then you go to like now, like it's twenty five billion dollars for two thousand twenty one. Mm -hmm. You can see this astronomical just increase of budget yeah. and I, I think that's what it seems like you're sh showing like how this manifests on the on the nation mm -hmm. yeah uh people who are my age around 35 you know grew up in the 
in the 80s and early 90s, yeah, we're, we're the last ones to remember what it was like to move freely. Where, you know, Red's Kids is something that I talk about. It's like just being able to go outside and play and be gone all day, you know, and be exploring. And that changed for my younger cousins. You know, we started to stay closer to home. I didn't realize how big of an impact um, historically and like generationally it had until um, my um, nieces were born because I began to to um, I began to see that every time we got to the checkpoint, like just their whole demeanor and their attitude changed, you know, from being, you know, happy little girls to being scared. And already knowing that when you approach the checkpoint to be quiet, to sit still, um, you know, that attitude. And I was like, wow, like, you know, to like already at that age be be um, used to used to that already having that change or already that change in demeanor, understanding that you're going to be questioned and you're going to be searched. You need to be on your best behavior, you know, or else something might happen. And there was um, instances where uh, families, you know, I, I talked earlier about the elder, but there was also um, a, a instance where there was an undercover um, um, shadow wolf in his family, and they were going through the checkpoint, and they they were harassed really bad, um, and the kids were traumatized um, to the point where they would. Um, have like really bad reactions when they would approach the checkpoint um, and the kids had to go you know to counseling and things like that so it's traumatizing so that's where the um, the term checkpoint trauma came from because it's like wow this is a new thing it's a new thing for us a lot of people think like oh it's just it's just normal now you know but you know we have to remind ourselves it's not like we didn't create this situation. And despite how much scrutiny the nation is under, I always remind people, well, you know, the people that are crossing and the drugs that are crossing, like their final destination isn't South Arizona, you know, their final destination is all these other places. So we're just a passing zone, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard because we have to remind, especially our leadership who do support um, these grants and do support the presence of Border Patrol in the nation and who, you know, give approval for right of ways and for all these projects that they want to do. Um, a lot of times their attitude has been like, well, we've done it to ourselves. And I'm like, no, we didn't. And it's hard because it's so personal and literally close to home that I think also not seeing it in that way is a sort of like protective and defense mechanism for a lot of autism. Because if you think about it in that way and you're living there and you're, you know, living in it, it's hard, you know, to realize like you're under surveillance, you're under occupation, um, and things aren't the way they are. Things aren't the way they used to be and they're not gonna be for a very long time unless something changes. And so I think it's just hard, heartbreaking um, for a lot of people. And I think that's why a lot of people don't like to talk about it in that way. Um, 
but also I learned a lot from my students um, in their writings. Like some of them wrote about um, their um, families or their homes being raided, um, uh, watching their parents go through all of that. Um, there was one young man who wrote about migrants and how um, he knew that when they came to his house for help, that he he felt good because he knew that that he, they were helping people, but he also felt good because he knew that by helping them, that he was gonna that meant that they they would have food in their fridge, they would have electricity, and that he would have new shoes for school, um, and that was you know through that business. We are helping each other like we always have. Um, just the, the way that people do it has changed. And, you know, why people do it um, has also changed a bit because of the money that's involved. Um, especially when we look at cases like Scott Warren's, um, where these humanitarian groups um, are able to help migrants, um, but also have a different support system. Um, than autumn who have basically helped them in the same way, um, but are criminalized for it. And a lot of people have lost their lives. Um, a lot of people have lost their lives, like liter literally and figuratively. And I, I would share that because, you know, with my family and my um, cousins and uncles and my dad who got involved in, um, in trafficking that... Um, it, it had an effect on our, our lives and my generation because you have a whole generation of awesome kids who didn't have their parents, you know, um, because a lot of the parents were um, either got caught up in that lifestyle or uh, went to prison. And that was the case with me because my dad was in prison from the time I was um, in first grade to eighth grade, and that had a bit big effect on my family, you know. And, and so it was I, a first month of smuggling. Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of other families too, you know. And so there is this big old um, wound, you know, that the border like basically created, not just uh, like literally on the land by dividing the people, but just by. Um, you know, the different effects that it's had on the people on both sides of the line. And it's still, it's still um, rippling. And, and so like talking about these things and talking about it with our community um, from the know your right stuff to like breaking, breaking down the history, um, questioning Border Patrol. So after that, we started to, we, and I mean like other young autumn, um, we created a collective that we called Thorn because um, we wanted to be a thorn in, in the foot of authority, um, Donald the Michigan Rights Network, um, that came out of TOCC, um, or us that were attending TOCC at the time. But we started to go, we started to question, and then it was cool to see the effect because then the council started to have these um, community forums. But when the flyers started to come out for these community forums, it was 
you know, you see the seal of the Donut Nation, and you see the seal of of Border Patrol or Department of Homeland Security. So it was like that partnership against the people. It was cool because we would do our research. You know, we would read resolutions and we read um, Border Patrol strategies and we would show up with like direct questions. And it was just pretty funny to see like a lot of times they had no words. And I think a lot of times they were surprised that we knew that much. And for me, um, going from doing that community work, um, I... You know, of course, it led to to bigger platforms. Um, um, in 2017, um, I got invited. It was a lot of different trips, but I got invited to go to um, Palestine for 10 days. And I knew that the border technology, the surveillance technology was um, an Israeli company, but I didn't know too much outside of that until we went there. And seeing, um, seeing for ourselves how similar their situation was to us, um, meeting with the community members and them already knowing about us and knowing about our situation was really surprising to me. You know, we're like across the world and here this is something that connects us, it's this militarization, it's this is the surveillance technology, war technology that is being used to displace and erase, you know, history of people, desert people too. You know, migration movement across the land is nothing new. Um, it's something that still exists. It's something that needs to exist because the land changes and we change, you know, we're connected to the land through our food, through our water. And as the land changes, the people change. And we're seeing that now with climate change, right? That, you know, there's forces beyond our control that force us to move along the land sometimes. I think also a lot of people don't realize that the laws are different around the border than the rest of the country. You know, a lot of things are exempt, not just, um, not just um, on the land, but, you know, for corporations, for mining, for all of these different things that, you know, are the reason why there's so much business and whether that's legal or illegal. And I think a lot of the things that I've seen that I can um, share is that, you know, Border Patrol isn't a unified, they're not unified. <laughs> they're not a unified command. Um, like, yes, they do have their strategies and stuff, but on the ground, um, even just with the Thanat Nation, there's three sectors of Border Patrol that patrol the Thanat Nation, and they don't communicate. Um, they oftentimes don't know what each sec sector is doing or where they're at. A lot of there's a lot of infighting and things like that, and there's also a lot of um, corruption within Border Patrol. And those are like conversations I felt like I couldn't have when I was younger because I was too scared. But now I'm not scared to ask our community members like, hey, what happened at that time? Or what happened to you? Or what? how did that go down? Um, and seeing like, yeah, our speculations are true. But now the thing is, you know, how do we document that? And how do we, um, how 
can we on our part um, do our, our part of sharing our stories and documenting like our part of how we see this part of history and what's happened. Um, and one thing, and I don't like to think about it this way, but I see that it has to be this way for right now is as far as the Donatomation, um, I see that part of why we're not as effective in keeping Border Patrol accountable is that we don't have anything in place right now. Um, we depend on resolutions and MOUs that, you know, are just basically something on paper, but there's not really an authority, there's not really an office, there's not really somebody or anybody that's out there actually keeping Border Patrol accountable to these agreements. And so what I see we would need to do, we have to do is to create our own border policies that determine any how anybody, you know, operates on their land, whether it's border patrol, whether it's, you know, outside companies or what have you. But what's happening now is that the enrollment the Donatomation Enrollment Office is basically becoming a, a branch of um, the Department of Homeland Security because each, in order to even produce those enhanced tribal IDs, the office needed to be outfitted like a federal office. And it also, again, like creates a divide and conquer tactic between Optum in the US and Optum in Mexico because Autumn and Mexico don't have access to those enhanced tribal IDs, so there's not anything that's helping them to move freely back and forth. It's only helping Autumn and the U.S. to move freely back and forth. And so it just creates like a bigger, you know, bigger canyon of like, you know, these, these um, privileges that, you know, ha happen for, for Autumn on both sides of the line. And it's, um, it just creates more division. And there's been a lot that's been happening these past couple of years as the border started to go up, the border wall, the reinforced border wall with Trump's administration. Um, when they were doing the construction, they also unearthed it, a lot of ancestors and a lot of things that they probably wouldn't have found otherwise, which I think on our end reinforce our presence um, before the border was established. Um, one of the biggest things are these, uh, what they call them, geoglyphs. Basically, they're big um, images that are on the land that you can see from above. So there's a whale that they found halfway between Quito um, de Quito and Yuma. You that they saw from the air or they yeah. unearthed from? Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. After going through everything that I shared and then coming back to, okay, we're... we're we're um, now seeing this reinforced border wall, um, but at but literally, you know, underneath it is again like our presence, like a reminder of our presence, our ancestors, our are the marks that we've left, and to remind ourselves and to remind others that you know we are speaking the truth and we are the truth, and there is a whole other truth beyond and before the border existed. 